If you have your Bibles this morning, turn to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3. And while you are turning there, let me just say that it has been a... And I know this has the danger of sounding like a preacher speak, but it has been a great blessing already to worship with you this morning. The hymns, the spirit with which they were sung... We started off acknowledging our sinfulness and our great need of God's mercy, our great need of His compassion and grace found in Christ, and then we finished the service by proclaiming that Christ, the victor over sin and death, has risen from the grave, and we just bask in His holiness. So praise the Lord for worshiping God in the heart through song. Colossians chapter 3, I'm going to read to you just three verses and then Try to comment on some of this. Colossians 3, verse 14. And above all these things put on charity, which is the bond of perfectness. And let the peace of God rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing with grace in your hearts to the Lord. And I'll go ahead and read verse 17. And whatsoever ye do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God and the Father by Him. Now, to try to give these words some context, it's important that we understand what Colossians is really all about. The book of Colossians is a beautiful portrait of the Lord Jesus Christ. That there is one word or one phrase that can sum up what Colossians claims about Christ. This is one of the great claims about Christ. It is that Christ is sufficient. He is sufficient. Now that word sufficient in our day and age doesn't quite do justice to what Colossians claims. And so perhaps it would be better to define sufficient the way that Paul does here in Colossians when he says in verse 19 of Colossians 1, for it pleased the Father that in Him, that is in Christ, should all fullness dwell. Again, in verse 9 of chapter 2, he says, For in Him, or in Christ, dwelleth, resides, remains, stays. It's permanent in Christ. Well, what is permanent in Christ? For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So to understand sufficiency, you must understand fullness. What a concept. Fullness. There's no gap. There's no lack. There's nothing wanting. Well, fullness for what? Colossians 1 and 2 lays out what Christ is the fullness for, what Christ is sufficient for. It says, because Christ created all things, that He is sufficient for all things. Because Christ sustains all things, He is sufficient for all faith. Because Christ has reconciled mortal enemies, sinful man, a holy father, then Christ is sufficient to place our trust and our rest in. And Colossians would go on to say, of Christ in us, he says, and ye are complete in Him. Friends, we're using some pretty big words today, some pretty big concepts. Fullness. Complete. That is, in Christ, or connected to Christ, you who are found in Christ are complete. Think of that. That is, in you, as bound to Christ, there's nothing left that you need. He's sufficient for wisdom. He's sufficient for knowledge. He's sufficient for salvation. So you have a fullness of wisdom, 
a fullness of knowledge, a fullness of salvation, a fullness of forgiveness, a fullness of a clean slate, a full and complete victory over sin and Satan and the enemies of darkness, fullness of reconciliation, a fullness of translation from the power of ruling darkness in our lives and having been moved into the kingdom of the dear Savior, a fullness of redemption found in His blood. So this is the concept that runs all through Colossians. You're complete in Him. He's sufficient. You have no real needs because they are met completely. They are met fully in the person, in the work, in the relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. And I know this claim that we probably all have been on the sound of the gospel many times in our lives. This claim still stretches our belief, right? Because we compare it to experience. We compare it to our emptiness for wisdom for how to navigate church or how to navigate a relationship or how to navigate life plans or how to navigate the feeling of guilt that we often reside within. And so by faith, we come to this crux. And we say, do I believe? Do I believe the claim of Colossians regarding Jesus Christ is real? That it's right? That it is truth? And so when by faith we come to believe the claim of Colossians is correct, that in Him the Father was pleased to place all fullness for all needs, solution for every problem, balm for every wound, wisdom for every confusion, peace for every bit of unrest. When we come by faith to believe that, then we are ready to turn to Colossians chapter 3 and 4, because what Colossians 3 and 4 does, the great aim of these two wonderful chapters, some of the most important chapters in Scripture regarding the response, and that's exactly what these chapters are. These chapters contain the logical response to this glorious claim about Jesus Christ. If He is fullness, then how does that affect me? If He is fullness, then how should I respond? What is the logical response for one who has made me complete, who completes me, who satisfies, who fills? What is the proper response to this one? And so there's a lot of practical instruction, a lot of practical exhortation in Colossians 3 and 4. It starts off and says, first of all, if this is true, then there must be some things that we are willing, that we willingly, voluntarily, gladly turn aside from. There are things that we daily agree, we daily commit to mortifying because Christ is more precious. He's more valuable. My completeness in Christ is of greater value to me than whatever pleasures I could receive out of the things that He calls me to mortify. So He calls on us to mortify fleshly desires, fleshly inclinations, that which Scripture says is against Christ's nature. He calls on us to mortify sinful behaviors, sinful attitudes, attitudes that come from a heart that is not filled with the peace and satisfaction that comes through Jesus Christ. Sinful deeds. And then He tells us to begin to put on or to add to our thoughts, to renew our minds in regards to things that we should put on. And so I think that really Colossians 3 are the logical response to this glorious claim that Christ completes, that Christ is sufficient, that Christ fills the summation of this can be found in Colossians 3, verses 14 through 16. He says, walk in charity, walk in love. This is the bond that completes, this is the bond that, of perfectness. 
In verse 16 he says, and let the words of Christ dwell in you. If it is Christ that brings wisdom, Christ that brings calm, Christ that brings peace, Christ that completes, then let His words live in you. Let them dwell in you. Be close to the words of Christ. Be dominated by the words of Christ. Be ruled by the words of Christ. Let them teach you. Let them admonish you. Be filled with the words of Christ. But then in verse 15, there's another concept that I want to talk about with you this morning. If Christ is sufficient, if Christ completes, if Christ fills, then this is the response that should follow. Notice verse 15 with me. And let, it's a command there, let the peace of God, or the peace of God which comes through Christ, or some translations render just, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to the which also you're called in one body, and be ye thankful. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. I would call attention to the word rule. Let the peace of Christ rule your hearts. That's the center, they're the source from which all things flow. Your thoughts flow from your heart. Your actions flow from your heart. We do what our hearts desire. You've probably heard the phrase, people do what they really want to do. And that means people do what their hearts are inclined towards. He says, let the peace of God, the peace of Christ, rule your hearts. Dominate your hearts. Govern your hearts. Preserve the order of your heart. Now this is beautiful language. You recognize it as sounding very Christian and very biblical. But think about this concept. That the peace, what is peace? Peace is a soul that is set at, 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 at rest. The soul at rest. The soul that is, has confident assurance. The soul that is content. Perhaps the picture that is most vivid of peace in Scripture is the picture, uh, is the story of the disciples at sea. They're in the roiling tempest and they're pretty certain that their demise will come very soon. It's clear that the storm is more powerful than their boat. And they begin to look for help. And they can't bell enough water. And they can't row fast enough. They can't set their sails to do battle with the, with the winds. They begin to look for Christ. Where's Christ found? Christ is found in the most unexpected place, in the bottom of the ship. And what is He doing? He's asleep. That's the picture of peace. It's a soul at rest. The soul that's not moved by what's around. The soul that has confident assurance. What a concept. Friends, the sufficiency of Christ, the completeness that we find in Christ, demands that the peace that comes through Him, through what He has done, through our union with Him, through our relationship with Him, through His continued work in our lives, that peace demands a ruling place, a governing place, in our hearts. And I would submit to you that we are best equipped to make decisions. We are best equipped to find wisdom. We are best equipped to do all things pleasing to the, to the honor and glory of God when this peace rules, dominates, governs our hearts. And so we come to this message and we're already saying, Lord, help us, right? We're already saying, God, I don't measure up. Because, you know, let me just talk about Facebook for a minute. Facebook has got a lot of good things, a lot of bad things. But beyond good or bad, it's a great um, window into people's minds, right? It's a great window into people's minds. So we can come to church, we can memorize, let the peace of God rule our hearts. There's something negative. And by negative, I don't necessarily mean, you know, 
the stores um, being empty and you being hungry tomorrow. By negative, I mean you getting caught up in traffic when you're going to church. Something negative comes into our lives. Facebook is a great window into the reality. Colossians 3.15 is nothing more than a pretty platitude in most Christians' hearts. And so I wanted to look today at not just demand you say, start having peace. That won't do anything, will it? Be at peace in your heart. That won't do a thing. But what I do want to do is talk to you about the peace of Christ. What is this peace of Christ that he says should govern our hearts so that we find souls that are liable to agitation, we would, we would, we would confess, souls that are liable to unrest, souls that instead of sleeping on a rocking boat, usually are found, maybe not railing, but undone, busy with unproductive activity, Minds that won't stop stirring, won't stop moving. This is the place we find ourselves much of the time. And he says that the peace of Christ rule your hearts. And so let's spend a little while today where we read this morning in John 14. We're going to look at the words of Christ in John 14 through John 16 this morning. Because I think this is a seminal passage for the believer. These are some of the last words of Christ before last admonitions to his disciples before he went to the cross. These words are assuredly meant to describe for us the peace of Christ. Because these, this is his intent. And we know this because the passage here in John 14 through 16 is bookended with this very thought. The first word of John, the first verse of John 14 says what? It says, let not your heart be troubled. Let your heart be at peace. Let your heart find rest. Let your heart be assured. Let your heart be content or satisfied. And then if you turn to John 16 and you look at the very last verse there, what does he tell us? These things have I spoken unto you that in me, in me, in my words, in the reality of who I am, in your connection to me, in your union with me, in me, ye might have peace. So this Passage is bookended. Let not your heart be troubled. These things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. And so let's just acknowledge on the very front end, friends, that Christ, if He be Christ, Christ is not demanding something in Colossians 3. Paul's not. And Christ is not uttering words in John 14 through 16 that are merely empty platitudes meant to just provide a, uh, some sort of a, of a placebo that doesn't actually work in reality. The truth is that if we are believers and we are found in Jesus Christ, there is something in Christ that really does govern a heart to place it at rest regardless of what's happening all around. In our church, we do a lot of biblical counseling. We've been meeting with a family for a long time, maybe four years now, and, and this particular man has had an, uh, a, a battle with an addiction for 16 years, it's a battle that many times everyone around him, and he himself was sure that he was going to lose. And in fact, much of the time you would say it was not a battle at all. It was just a giving in to the inclination. There was always the idea, the idea was always there that it could not be fixed. because He was hardwired for this addiction and there was nothing he'd really do. And the circumstances around him in his life were too turbulent and too stressful for him to really be able to think that he could turn away. I got, got a text from him this past week, and, and um, here's what it said. It said, 
I just wanted to, 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 to commemorate that today is uh, the six-month anniversary of, of me being clean. And he went on to talk about how that the reality of Christ and the work of Christ in his life had begun to completely change his perspective. And it was, the, it, was, it, was, it was words, as we've been hearing, that were just, um, it, was, it was numbing to say, is this, is this real? It seems surreal to hear this same person speak these words and walk in this way when the testimony of the last years have been completely different. And it wouldn't matter what occurred in his life, it was enough to turn him upside down and go right back into his addiction in the past. Let me tell you something, the last six months have been real turbulence in his life. His marriage seems to be going in a, in a, in a southerly direction. His work has brought in um, unspeakable stress. And yet in this same uh, experience, whereas before the turbulence was created, self-created, now the turbulence is real. And yet this man, friends, has found rest for his soul during from what the outside has been the most Turbulent, and what should cause someone to go pursue an addiction has been the most turbulent part of his life. So Christ's words here are not empty. They're not empty platitudes. They're real. Friends, when he says that the peace of God rule in your hearts, there is something in Christ that is so wonderful, that is so real, that is so assuring, that it really does bring rest to a person whose mind is stayed upon Jehovah. So let's look again at a few things here in this passage of many that Christ is, that Christ says, that is meant to work peace in the heart of the believer. Number one, John 14, verse 1. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. Christ says that the, that the, the, the path to peace, the path to being governed by rest, the path to not reacting to every outside stress in a way that is not productive, that will not produce harmony, that will not produce sound thinking and sound wisdom, the way to avoid that is found in believing in Him. And then if we go down a few verses in verse 6, which you'll be very familiar with, Christ makes an incredible claim that we are forced to confront and say, do I believe this or do I not? Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in Me. Well, what are you believing in, Christ? That's what He says in John 14, verse 6. Jesus saith unto Him, I am the way. I am the truth. And I am the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. Where is this peace found that can dominate and rule life? It's found in believing Christ. Believing that Christ is the way. The way to peace. Which is found in God. Believing that Christ is the truth. And believing that Christ is life. What a claim. I am the way. I recently finished a book I'd long wanted to read. The iPad and the Kindle make reading big fat books easier. And so I finally read The Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. Don't judge me for wanting to read that kind of, that kind of work. The story, one of the seminal histories of the rise of Nazi Germany and then the fall through World War II. And a big chunk of that big book is taken up discussing all of the different measures that were taken by so many varied and strange at times and different people to avoid war of World War II. Even to the very last moment, 
There were people flying back and forth, back and forth between Germany and England and Germany and, and, and Russia and Germany and France trying to broker some terms that could prevent the continent from breaking forth into what everybody knew would be a devastating war. And the very best minds were given and the very best strategies and much compromise was offered. And one of the problems was was that the terms of peace of the, war, of the war before that, when the First World War, were so unpalatable to the German people and so harsh to the German people that the German people really didn't have much stomach to be at peace with anybody. They had suffered because they had been unfairly and unjustly uh, uh, put into a corner after the first war, and now they weren't really that interested in brokering peace at all. And so the thought of my mind was, listen, all of these people, all of this effort, all of this time, all this compromise, and still what everybody knew would be completely devastating and destroy the continent still could not be brokered. And we see this in our world today with the tenuous Relations in the middle of the, most of the Middle Eastern uh, countries, but uh, Syria right now is struggling to have to figure out how can they broker peace with these warring factions, the countries that we've been involved with in Afghanistan and Iraq. The idea of peace is probably a very fleeting idea, and the way to peace nobody really truly understands or knows. Then I think of the thousands, no, not the thousands, the millions, the billions of dollars that are spent every week in this country, the most prosperous country in the world, with much ease of life and comfort available. And the, 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 the vast numbers of dollars that are spent every week by couples and by families seeking how in the world can we broker peace in this home. And the spending goes on and on and on for years and for years and for years. And the way to peace still seems as far removed as it was when the very first dollar was spent with the very first expert. And then I think of the many times when I've laid on my bed at night, and I bet you that you can probably fellowship with this, and I thought, God, I can't believe that's what I did today. I swear upon my mother's, you know, whatever, and three stacks of Bibles, I will do better tomorrow. Only to find myself, guess where, the next night, on the same bed, making the same proclamations and the same futile attempts to figure out a way to have peace when there's guilt within. Friends, the way of peace is the most fleeting, vanishing thing in this world. It can't be purchased. It can't be counseled. It can't be brokered. The reason it can't be, friends, is because the way to peace is actually the way to God. When you begin to conceive the small degree of the God we just sang about, who is holy, 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 a thrice holy God, a God is so far removed and yet so near that He sees down past the facade that I wear every day. It sees way past the clothing that I put to impress or the words that I give to fool. And he sees way past that. He sees right down into the center of my affections. And he knows. And his association with something like what I am is impossible. And yet we read right here that Jesus says, I am the 
way. You mean to tell me that all those nights spent trying to figure out how I'm going to do better could have been thrown away by just throwing myself upon Jesus Christ? Yes, it's exactly what I'm telling you. Because what, if we were conceived of, of Hitler and, and England as mortal enemies, that is nothing compared to a holy God and sinful man. And Christ, it says, He has brokered the terms of peace by offering Himself as a holy, spotless, righteous offering to a holy God, taking our sins, my sins, on His own body. And God says, I am pleased, satisfied with this offering of peace. Brothers and sisters, I know people who are true children of God, sincere children of God, who still live every day trying to figure out, in some way they, they, they have forgotten, they haven't fully grasped, the reality of what it means today for Christ to say, I am the way to God. And they sit there with their guilt and they don't know what to do with it. They try to improve themselves and wash themselves and make themselves better and more whole. Instead of just saying, I come to you, God, through Christ. And I believe by faith that you're pleased with His offering on my behalf. And I have been made complete in Him. Do you need peace in your soul? I'll tell you, Christ is the way to God. Therefore, Christ is the way peace. Then Christ says, I am the truth. I am the truth. What a concept in our world today. Evangelicalism, there's been an effort to perhaps repackage the truth to make it um, less whatever it is that seems to be unseemly. And an effort to, I believe in our day to day, to rethink truth. What is truth? And then there are those who love doctrine and love truths about Christ and about God. And they will stand and they will fight and they will argue and they will, you know, set, a, set, set, a, set, set their foundation upon certain things, certain truths. And those are all good things. But friends, all beyond that, let me say this. Christ is truth. Christ is truth. In other words, you can know something about Christ. You can repackage Christ. You can do whatever. But if you don't know Christ, you don't have the walk with Christ and experience with Christ, then you don't know truth. Because Christ is truth. But oh, what a blessing. Think about this in terms of peace. Oh, what a blessing it is. When you understand in this confusing world that we live in, where people are arguing truth and discussing whether there is truth, what a blessing it is. To say, you know what? I know where truth is found. There's a lot I don't know. There's a lot that confuses me. There's a lot that's concerning to me. But I know this for sure. Christ is truth. So therefore, I'm going to pursue Christ. I'm going to listen to Christ. I'm going to open God's Word and ask God to show me Christ and for Christ to reveal through His Word truth that will, that, that will, uh, uh, that will anchor me in these troublesome and, and strange and confusing times. Listen, friends, I don't mind at all rethinking truth or making sure that it is right to have the Berean spirit. But let me encourage you here. Let your rethinking, let your refocusing, let your repacking, whatever it is, let it always lead you to Christ. In His Word. He is truth. And He will reveal Himself and His truths in His Word. See, You see, the simplest person... My grandmother is not a theologian. My grandmother is also not easily moved. Because she, she knows Christ. And she loves Christ. And she's committed to Christ. So the simplest person can be anchored in this world if they are anchored upon Jesus Christ. What a blessing that is. What a blessing that is. The way of peace. The peace that comes through knowing truth. And then he says the peace that comes through Christ alive. Paul seemed to really just, this, this seemed to be the, the one thought that just galvanized Paul and moved Paul. 
you remember in Colossians 3, he says, when Christ who is our life, he is life. In Philippians chapter uh, 1 or 2, wherever it is, he says, um, or maybe it's 3, he says, for to me, uh, to live is Christ. Another place in Galatians, he says, the life that I now live, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Paul was enamored with the fact that he had discovered life. This morning, as I got here, I met some of the young men and asked them, you know, what are you studying and what are you doing now and these things. And man, I used to hate those questions. So I apologize for asking those questions today. I used to hate those questions. I don't know what I'm going to do with my life. I'm not sure what I want to do. Since I would say I'm going to be a doctor or I'm going to be this or that. It didn't really mean a thing most of the time. I don't know. I don't know. And there are others who know for sure they begin to pursue something. They begin to pour themselves into something. And it's usually not for several years. Maybe not for many years. They turn aside disillusioned and think, my goodness, I gave my all for this. And this is a life. And they call that the midlife crisis. There are others who live their whole lives. They get to the end of the life and say, what is life about? They go, I don't know. I don't know. What a claim. Paul says, or Jesus says, I am life. I am life eternal. You go, I don't really like my life now. I don't know about living an eternal life. He says, I am life now. You come to me. You walk with me. You live by faith on me. You eat of me. You drink of me. And you will find life. You will find life that satisfies. You will find life that sustains. You will find life that fills. You will find life that completes. You will find life that never leaves you dry. Friends, I know these are huge claims, but Christ is a huge being. This is what He claims. You pour yourself in Me. You walk by faith in Me. You believe Me, and you will find life. You will find it, actually, that, that, that life is really not defined by what are you going to do or what are you going to be. It's not how life is defined. Whatever you are going to do, whatever you're going to be, is, is, is merely a means to pursue Christ and to walk with Him. And he says, in there, in me, there you'll find life. Well, let's move along. I know that we're running uh, short on time, so let's move to a few more thoughts. Peace, the peace of Christ. Let this thought will your, uh, rule your hearts. Um, I'm just going to mention these briefly. So sorry, we have a short time left. So let me mention the second one that's found here in John 14. In John 14, verse 21, he says, He that hath my commandments and keepeth them, he it is that loveth me, and he that loveth me shall be loved of my Father, and I will love, my, love him and will manifest myself to him. Then in verse 23, he says, If a man love me, he will keep my words, and my Father will love him, and we will come unto him and make our abode with him. Now, I read those passages very hurriedly, but notice there are some huge concepts there. Listen to what he says. My Father will love Him. We will come unto Him. We will make our abode with Him. We will manifest ourselves to Him. This is the God of glory saying, I will dwell with Him. I will make myself clear. I will open myself up. I will reveal myself. I will walk with, I will commune with him. Well, who's the him? Who's the him? The him is he that loveth me and keepeth my words. He that hath my commandments doesn't throw them away, but he keeps them. He it is that I will make my abode with. He it is that I will dwell with. He it is that I will commune with. And so, friends, what we see here is, 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 um, is really dangerous in a way. There are some who would read this passage. In fact, there are many who read this passage and say, okay, here's what I've got to do. I've got to get everything right. I've got, to, I've got to, if I'm young, I've got to obey my parents. If I'm a teenager, I've got to avoid lust. 
if I am you know, a grown-up, I'll get to get along with my, my wife. If I can get all these things checked off the list, then God will bless me. He will dwell with me. He will, he will be there close to me. In fact, I've been with a lady recently who has just, he, her life has fallen apart because she had poured her life into her daughter. And her daughter has turned out a way that she did not expect and did not approve of. And so now she's thinking, what is the deal here? What in the world is going on? I have sang in the choir church all my life. I have given to missions. This is, this is not just hypothetical. This is what she's saying. I've given to missions. I've done missions. I've faithfully tithed. God says, if you honor me, I'll honor you. And yet here I find myself wondering what in the world happened. He didn't keep his end of the bargain. So it's a, there's, a, there's a, a, a real tendency in sinners to read this and go right back to thinking, I am the way. Not Christ is the way, but I am the way. If I can get everything just right, then God will dwell with me. Then He'll bless me. And by bless me, we usually mean not He will be with me. What we usually mean is that He will give me what I want. Right? Good to us means that God does for me what I already want to do anyway. Well, friends, that's not very good. Because our minds and our desires are so compromised by our natures of sin that usually what our concept of good is, it would actually destroy us. God's concept of good is far better than that, and He will give us of Himself. And so, friends, don't read this in a legalistic way. Don't read this in a way, if I can get all these things right and keep all these commands, and God will dwell with me. It's not the way at all. The way comes from realizing that Christ is the way, that Christ is the truth, that Christ is the life, and this incredible recognition that God has made me complete in Him causes me, or should cause us, to want to do everything we can to submit ourselves to His Lordship, not out of, okay, let's negotiate, but out of love. Love for Christ. Thanksgiving to Christ. Recognition of His mercy toward me is the great motivator that pushes us to obey the commands of God. Do you get that? Please do. If you don't, if you understand that love and obedience are tied together, you will find yourself eternally frustrated, eternally unrested in what should be a restful soul. Then in verse 27, He says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Ye have heard how I said unto you, I go away and come again unto you. If ye love me, ye would rejoice, because I said I go to the Father, for my Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it came to pass, that when it is come to pass, ye might believe. What's happening here? What's happening here is that Christ is just acknowledging that they are, his disciples are very upset confused. They're not at rest. They're not at peace. Why? Because they have heard him say, I'm going away. Could there be anything more devastating to hear when you've recognized that you're walking with the Messiah? You're walking with the Master. You're walking with the only one who could tell you your heart, who could instruct you in a pure way, who could heal, who could do all the things that Christ did. And so they are understandably upset. They are dismayed. They are frustrated. They are probably angry. They're confused for sure. And Christ says this, if you love me, if you really understood what's happening here, you would rejoice when I said, I'm going away and I'm going back to the Father. What's he saying? Well, what is the path back to the Father? The path back to the Father is Judas is going to betray him. People who are more vicious than you can imagine are going to, are going to pluck the hair out of his face. They're going to lie about him and rail about him. They're going to, they're going to work and work and work until they can find somebody to bring some dishonest, an untrue accusation against him. 
They're going to watch their Savior suffer, their, their, their Master suffer in a way they can never, never, ever imagine. They know His power. They're going to watch Him withhold His power and put up with and take all this abuse. And they're going to watch Him, although they must have been thinking, okay, here's the time, here's the time. Is it time now, Lord? It's time to act. And then with dismay, they're going to watch Him never act and never come down and never thwart His enemies. And they're going to watch, hear Him say, it is finished. And I don't know what that means. They're going to hear him, him give a loud cry and going to see him stop breathing. And they're going to watch him be buried. That's the way to the Father. And Jesus said, if you knew what was happening, you would rejoice. Why? Because the will of the Father was being done right then, friends. And what was the will of the Father? The will of the Father was that every single one whom he had given to Christ in covenant before the world began would be found holy and unblameable and unreprovable in the sight of God. Where does this peace of Christ come from, friends? Listen to me. The peace of Christ comes from a knowledge in our souls that the will of the Father is being done. You say, you don't understand what's happening in our church right now. You don't understand what's happening um, in my life right now or my, my, my wife right now. No, I don't. I don't know about that, all that stuff. But I know what happened here. I know that the greatest travesty Injustice and evil was acted out upon at the cross. And even with a consortium of the greatest minds of evil, they still could not thwart the will of the Father. So no matter what evil is happening in your life right now, whatever bad thing that you see as being bad happening in your life right now, I know this. I know the will of the Father has not been thwarted in any way. And he's not flummoxed. He's not confused. And he's still doing his will. Can you believe that? hard to believe, isn't it? It's hard to believe, isn't it? And yet it's exactly what's happening. We know this by this passage, we know this by many other passages, including Romans 8, 28, which you're very familiar with. And we know. I'm glad I used that word instead of, and we can see, and we've experienced, or although we have experienced that in the past. And we know that, that, that all things work together for good to them that love God. Let me tell you something, friends. If you walk in your struggle without the peace of Christ, you will only bring more destruction upon your life. You will only bring more trouble, only bring more heartache, only bring more pain. But if you walk understanding that the will of the Father is being done, He has good purposes in my life to bring Himself glory and to make me more like Christ. Friends, by the way, that's the good. The good of Romans 8.28 is this. The good of Romans 8.28 is not that you'll be able to look back 20 years and say, wow, that really turned out for good. The good of Romans 8.28 is that whatever you are experiencing is being purposed by Christ, by God. To make you into something that you never could ever do on your own and that is unfathomable. And that is the purpose of God in this, whatever this is, is to make you like Christ. You see, we need that perspective, don't we? Because we, we desire good that is so much smaller than that. Good to me means just let me sleep eight hours a night and eat food that I like and have my favorite team win and, and have people like me. And, and, and make a lot of money. And have my whatever. Have my desires met. Meet the right person. Have 16 children. Whatever it is. And we sell ourselves so far short. When God has something far more cosmic in mind. That is to make me like Christ. Stop selling yourself so short. Or stop selling Christ so short. The will of the Father is being done. I know we're out of time. Um, let me just mention these last three just in, in passing. The great theme throughout this passage is the promise of the Holy Spirit. 
Jesus says in John 16, verse 14 of the Holy Spirit, He says, He shall glorify me, for He shall receive of mine and shall show it unto you. All things that the Father hath are mine, are mine, therefore said I, He shall take of mine and shall show it unto you. The promise of the Holy Spirit. Christ says, It's better for, him, for me to go away. If I don't go away, He won't come. So the, the work of the Holy Spirit is meant to bring peace to your hearts, peace to your minds. Because the Holy Spirit's promise is, is that He will glorify Christ, because He will take the things of Christ, He will give them to us, and He will open unto us all the things of Christ. And what are those? They are all the things the Father hath are Christ. And so therefore, He will take of Christ, which is the Father's, and He will give it unto you. That's a lot of words and maybe kind of hard to follow. But when we read in Ephesians 1 that we have, in Christ, we have all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. All spiritual blessings. We have forgiveness. We have redemption. We have wisdom. We have knowledge. We have adoption. We have holiness. We have all these things. So the promise of the Spirit is, is the promise of the Spirit is that I will bring to you the very things you need in the time of need. That's the promise of the Spirit. I'll bring to you those words of mercy. I'll bring to you that vision of Christ. I will bring to you that healing blood. I will bring to you that convicting word. I will bring to you that wisdom to get yourself out of the rut and back on the path of righteousness. I will give those things to you. So friends, I'm afraid that even though we live in the day of the Holy Spirit, I'm afraid He continues to be a forgotten person of the Trinity in our minds most of the time. Do you understand the promise of the Spirit is to bring you the things of Christ and to open them to you and to, and to glorify Christ through receiving of Him and giving it and showing it unto you? What an incredible blessing. And Jesus says if you just ask the Father, He will give you the Holy Spirit. He's not like those, some kind of cruel, capricious Father who would hide from His children the things they need. It's not how He works. It's never been God's character. God's character is to care for His people in a tender and compassionate and fatherly manner. So let us be praying. Let us be beseeching the Father. Father, send us Your Spirit. We need the wisdom. We need Your grace. We need to be reminded of Christ. So, Father, send us Your Spirit. And what a peace results as the Spirit reveals Christ to us. The last two. What's the peace of Christ in this passage? The peace of Christ comes from abiding in Christ. I won't read John 15, but that's the passage that is found in John 15, abiding in Jesus Christ. So the idea of John 15, the, the, the picture he paints is one of a, of, a, of a branch. A branch that cannot flourish on its own. In fact, a branch that cannot live on its own. It needs a supply of nutrition. It is fully dependent upon the roots, the vine, bringing it the nutrition and the nourishment that it needs. So this branch lives with this, uh, lives with this vine, not in an adversarial way, but this branch lives with the vine in an intimate fashion. It knows that its needs are met. It knows that its supply is brought through the vine. And so the branch depends, the branch loves, the branch is intimate with the vine. So he says, your peace is going to be found in intimacy with Jesus Christ. Friends, there is no, there is no, um, substitute for your quiet time with Jesus Christ. There's not. You can read the Bible, and that's, that's great. You can listen to sermon audio. You can do mission work. You can do all these things, and they will not make you abide in Christ. There is no substitute for you to spend time with Christ in His Word, in prayer, in worship, listening, beseeching, talking, 
with Christ. Be close with Christ. And then finally, finally, what runs through this passage as well, the peace of Christ is a pilgrim mindset or an eternal mindset. Again and again and again, Jesus says to them, listen, you're going to have tribulation in this world. You expect that. You know, it's important to have right expectations. I, mean, I don't know that we always do our children a service. We hide our children from funerals. We hide our children from bad news. We don't, we tend, I say we, I say Americans generally tend to not frame for their children the reality of this life in a way they can grasp. So we hide these things and they grow up and they expect to have things be lovely and easy and light all the time. And they're shocked when it doesn't happen. Jesus says, that's not, how you, that's not a realistic perspective. Realism says you're going to have tribulation and problems in this world. Therefore, don't get so attached to this world. Don't look at this world as your salvation or as your fulfillment or even as your home. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. I told the story before. You may have heard it, but I was in San Diego uh, earlier this, this, this past year. And um, it was in a, a little vacation and, and um, within this uh, little town where Dr. Seuss lived. He's dead now. Talking to this guy about Dr. Seuss and, and, uh, and about Dr. Seuss's wife, his widow, who's still alive, and she's about ninety something years old now. And this is a really tony town. It's got it was it was just it was it was way out of my league. And I didn't even recognize the names of the cars that were driven, which you know that's not that big of a deal. But it was it was out of my league. So she instead of she has all the money in the world, instead of driving around in, in one of these cars that, that that was made somewhere far away, she has her driver drive around town in a big honking. Cadillac Escalade with big rims, and she she does this, and she she has a bumper, uh, uh, her license plate, and the reason she does this is because she wants people to notice her in this big honking Cadillac Escalade, and her license plate reads rich, rich. She's ninety something years old. She has very few breaths left to take, and her last vestige of hope of life, of peace, is rich. I hope you're thinking how empty, how vain, how sad. But you know something? If you and I were in Dr. Seuss's wife's place, would we be that desperate as well? <laughs> would we be, have that much need to be known or to have, to have whatever, way, whatever way manifested that we had achieved something in this life? Or would the peace of Christ be ruling our hearts to where we say, you know what, none of this really matters. Yes, life matters, but the things of life, the stuff of life really doesn't matter. Brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is full. He is complete for all your needs, and you are complete in Him. He will lead. He will guide in paths of righteousness. And so be thankful, as Colossians 3.15 closes. May we find, we won't just find it by accident. May we, as it says in, in Hebrews 4, he says, let us labor and strive to enter into the rest that is found in Him, and let the peace of Christ rule in our hearts, to which you're called in one body. May God bless you.